we are back this week with a review of another Oscar-nominated film. We are going to be talking about Green Book, starring Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali. But before that, obviously, we've got a bloody great bit of news for you. Bloody great. I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Will. Will, how are you doing this week? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. I do apologise to any listeners, but I'm starting to lose my voice. He's, so been, on, he's been partying all week. I, the, the, I don't party generally. Here he is, generally. courting the sympathy vote. I don't, shut up. I, I generally party not that often, but this weekend I had one birthday party of a friend and another birthday party of a friend, both who are 23. Both of them sad that they're 23, probably. They were like, age age is coming for us all. Um, it was great. It was great. I've just not got a voice. At what age should we be turning around and going, fuck, we're adults? Because I, I still I still very much feel like turning 18 was the other week, and it's not. It's four and a half years ago. I think that RuPaul always says that in... Tw- in tw- great bit in, of wisdom. Correct. Uh, 27 is the age where you go through your like life crises. 27. And then 28, you rise like a phoenix out of the ashes. That's like the conventional RuPaul knowledge. So basically, if you're still after burning at 27, you better turn it around quick. Very true. 28 is coming for you. 28 is coming. And you need to rise like that be, phoenix. You're either going to be left in the ashes or you're going to fly right out of them. Exactly. Well, aside from that, <laughs> wonderful terrifying bit of revelation from will um it's been quite an interesting week for film news nothing particularly major but just some really funny shit and also some really dark shit that we yeah. need to touch on so i thought i'd start off with some really funny shit uh have you seen that ryan reynolds and hugh jackman have like they've called a truce the truce the truce to their social media kind of war so obviously these guys respectively played deadpool and wolverine and it's going to kind of been this running joke for a long time that they hate each other. And it's just this really funny kind of um, repartee that they have on social. Some witty repartee well, <laughs> uh, that they have on the socials. Uh, you know what those kids are on these days. Yes, indeed. Um, but also it's seen in Deadpool 1 and 2. Yeah, they make Constant fun of it in the film jokes. marketing and in the movies. Anyway, this video popped up on YouTube trending this week saying that Ryan Reynolds and Hugh Jackman are called a truce. And it is... This just hilarious video where they both sort of sit in front of the camera and they announce that they're going to be fully supporting each other from here on in and that they've both worked individually on marketing campaigns for each of their respective products. So Ryan Reynolds has Aviation Gin and Hugh Jackman has the Laughing Man Coffee. Yes. It's called Laughing Man or Laughing Pig or something like that. Laughing Man Coffee is exactly right. Um, and have you seen this, Will? Yes, you... yes, of oh, course I've seen it. It's so funny. It's so, so funny. So the way, for, you know, spoiler alert for anyone that hasn't seen this, go and watch it before we talk about it. But it's only like a minute and a half. But yep. basically the joke, the joke video goes, Ryan Reynolds makes this really wonderfully uh, choreographed and uh, voiceover video kind of kind of explaining how great Hugh is and how great his coffee is and how it's all eco and it's helping uh, disadvantaged families and neighbourhoods and everything. And already I'm laughing at this point. I, and it's already, like, yeah. He's playing, he's playing naivety and like sincere but it's already sincerity so, so well. It's already so funny. And if you're, if you're kind of in tune with these guys, you know like, uh, this is definitely going to be one of those things where Hugh's actually not made one. And it's really awkward. And lo and behold, it cuts back to them sat there and Hugh's like, oh, no, there's still some bits to finish on mine. Like, we don't have to show, we don't have to show it. And Ryan Reynolds is like, no, 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 play the tape, play the tape. And it's literally <laughs> a video of Hugh Jackman <laughs> calling Ryan Reynolds a fucking prick and then pouring his gin out on the table. Oh, and it's just it's just the silence of the camera. It's just, <laughs> it's just the, the, and just all the gin and just Hugh Jackman sort of looking at it like, 
And then he just flicks the lid away, <laughs> doesn't he? Oh, so funny. So, so funny. I really want them to be in like a buddy cop comedy together. Oh, they'd be so good. What, like, um, what's the film with Will Ferrell and um, uh, Marky Mark? Marky Mark. Yeah, the the, the new guys. The oh, old... oh, um, oh, yeah, shit, the new guys. The new guys. Is the new guys? That yeah. was terrible. I the one, love the it. one where Samuel L. Jackson jumps off a roof, like yes! halfway through. Yeah, rubbish. Really? Didn't get on with it. But but Marky Mark's a peacock. He wants Stop to calling cry. him Marky Mark. It's Mark Wahlberg. No, it's Marky Mark. He's always Marky Mark for me. <laughs> Ever since he put on all those Calvin Kleins, he's been Marky Mark for me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, that yeah, that is it, the truce. As a thing, is great. I really want them to do films together. Yeah. Imagine if they're like space cowboys or something ridiculous. Someone needs to make it happen. Yeah. There must. Deadpool three must have Hugh Jackman in it. Well, if there's a Deadpool three, as we discussed the other yes, week, very it true. might be lost in the whole Fox Disney merger. Mm. But alas, what's your first bit of news, mate? Um, from the happy to the sad. Um, Albert. Well, immediately. <laughs> I mean, no, but yeah, it is. It is quite sad. I thought it, but it's. Are you going to lift us back up with your following piece of news? Oh, obviously, obviously, that's how I work. Um, and then we've got a co-piece of news that's going to hit everyone on a massive downer. Exactly, exactly. Then Jake has also seventeen other pieces of news after that. But um... <laughs> as, as, as per usual, <laughs> um, uh, the sad news is that Albert Finney, um, actor Albert Finney, has died um, at the age of eighty-two on the seventh of Feb, twenty nineteen. We're recording this on the tenth of February. Um, I did not know much about Albert Finney as an actor. It's a sad day in the world of cinema. People have paid their respects and said he was a wonderful man to work with. Um, he has an amazing screen career. It spans six decades. His first role was in 1960, starring alongside Laurence Olivier in The Entertainer, through to his last film in 2012. Um, he'd been nominated. What was his last film in 2012? Skyfall. Oh, interesting. He played Kincaid. The uh, James Bond's um, like the the person who keeps hold of the Skyfall estate, mm. the old man in that film. Yeah, um, and he's brilliant in that film. He's got so much charm, and it's an, a bit of an odd part of that film. The last the last half an hour, I think I think some people find it a bit self indulgent. Some people find it incredibly moving. I'm on the latter. I think that um, Albert Finney in that is fantastic. Um, he's been nominated for four Best Actor Oscars. Um, he nominated for uh, Poirot in Sidney Lumet's, Lumet's uh, Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, his performance in 1983's The Dresser, 1984's The Under the Volcano, and a supporting actor nomination playing Ed Marcy in Steven Stoderberg's Erin Brockovich. I didn't even know that it was Erin Brockovich. That's great. Um, he's worked with Ridley Scott, the Coen brothers, Tim Burton, and Paul Greengrass in The Bourne Ultimatum. So two films that I've seen Albert Finney in are... Um, Oh, there he is—the little crackles in his voice. I know. (laughs) Come Um, on, make it through this obituary quick. Well, I'm just (laughs) so sad. um, um, (laughs) Yes, um, I've seen him in Born Ultimatum, where he was great, and I've seen him in Annie, and I've seen him in um, The Skyfall, obviously. Um, Yeah, very sad news. Very, very sad news. Yeah, rest in peace, Albert Finney. Yes. Um, Bringing things, bringing the mood back up a tiny bit. Um, but in a dark way is always a strange tone with this podcast. We'll go with it. Uh, we're gonna, yeah, you're going to have to go with it. Um, we have not confirmation, but we know that it's kind of in the works. There is going to be an Aquaman spin-off movie, and it's going to contain none of the original cast. However, it's going to be a horror spin-off based around the area of the trench. 
from the Aquaman uh, film, that really dark... It was probably one of the coolest parts in the film when Aquaman and Marina, or whatever she's called... I think she's called Marina. Mira. Mira, that's it. Marina, because they're fish, you know. <laughs> so, that awesome scene where they're swimming down and it's the red light from the boat and all of these creatures are following them. It was really cool. Yeah. Probably one of the best moments in the film, to be honest. Um, but yeah, so James Wan and the other director, the other writer, sorry, of Aquaman are on board to do it. And there's a couple of writers from the Bad Robot Productions team, which is J.J. Abrams' oh, production cool. team, cool. who are on task with it. So, I mean, it's pretty cool whether, whether we'll see this. I feel like this is kind of one of those bits of news that could probably never happen, happen in six years' time or happen next year. Mm. Like, it, I have no idea where this is going to go. We don't know if this is going to come out before Aquaman 2. Probably would. Um, and apparently James Wan has said he's only going to return for Aquaman 2 if he likes the script that Warner Bros. write. Oh, which oh. I guess is being written currently. Um, so the kind of the future of Aquaman 2 seems to hang in the balance more than the trench. But no, we'll see. We'll see. It could be, could be quite an exciting spin-off. I mean, that could I, be a very it was film. it was like really there was such a creative energy behind that part of the film and we've not seen a superhero spin-off that's any other genre apart from like superhero spin-off like it'd be cool to see a horror film spin-off set in the dc universe yeah um definitely um my second piece of news um following david bowie's death in 2016 and then also following films like bohemian rhapsody where they they, they are celebrating um and rocket man elton john um, where they are celebrating um, musical icons, we have now got a David Bowie film coming up. Have we? Yeah, it's going to be called Stardust. It's going to be directed by Gabriel Range. It's going to be written by Christopher Bell. Who are these guys? What have they done before? Um, I'm not sure they've done that many things. Gabriel Range, I have not heard of until I looked him up. Um, he is the director of Death of a President, I Am a Slave, The Great Dame Robbery. There's like no, films. I never. Yeah, it's. Um, I think he. Death of a President is a documentary about George W. Bush. Okay. Uh, and he's a British filmmaker, and that's his most acclaimed piece of work. Right. So this is, a, I suppose, quite a big deal for him. Um, uh, it these chronicles parts of Bowie's life um, following his first visit to the States in 1971. Uh, it's the trip that partly inspired his Ziggy Stardust persona, hence the name Stardust is the film. And we have a name of the actor who's going to be playing David Bowie, who is Johnny Flynn. Now, Johnny Flynn... Um, oh, Johnny Flynn the singer? Johnny Flynn the singer. Really? Yes. Oh, that's incredible. It's fantastic. Is that confirmed? Confirmed. Oh, I bloody confirmed love Johnny cast. Flynn. His song, the Ro- his song, The Rote and the Rit, is just one of my favourite folk songs of all time. Yeah, he's, I, he's I a absolutely cool... love him. And he's and I I don't know didn't know much about Johnny Flynn, but I did a lot of looking up for him. In 2015, he also composed the music on period instruments for the Globe Theatre's production of As You Like It. He's he's a composer. He's done loads of films as well. He's also starred in lots of TV shows. He's, he was the um, he starred as Dylan Witter in the Channel Four and Netflix television sitcom Love Sick. So that thing, Lovesick, which was previously known as Scrotal Recall, which I did not know at all. What? Yeah, Lovesick, the net, the well... The Judd Apatow yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was known called, as Scrotal Recall. Yes, and then it was renamed Lovesick for pretty obvious reasons, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's, he's also going to be on screen. This is going to excite you. All right, go um, on, hit me with it. On screen alongside Jenna Malone, who I, I, don't, I don't know, um, as Bowie's first wife, Angie. Um, and then... 
Mark Maron playing his, <gasps> playing his record company publicist. <laughs> I know. Isn't this well, film well cast? Mark Maron. Shout out What the Fuck podcast. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it's um, oh, excellent. excellent. So, so Mark Maron is not only killing it in the podcast game. He's kind of the reason I'm in podcasting. He's not only like he's in both seasons of Glow, which are fantastic. Mm. He's now in the upcoming Joker film. And he's going to be in this. Yeah, and he's going to be in this. You know, For a guy he... who's not really an actor, he's doing a very good job of being an actor. Yeah, but that's because the podcast has established him as, as sort of a cultural entity. Yeah. Way. Like, he's got this, like, he's, he's got lots of opinions. He's got a really nice speaking voice. And because of that, he's cast well, as actors. I mean, his voice is like this. It's, yeah, it's very, but it's... very distinctive. Yes, but, but that's the thing. It's distinctive plus also, like, well-spoken, mm. which is exactly what you need for these sort of, like, comedy like comedy slash serious roles that he's been doing recently yeah well i mean this this bowie film sounds incredible do we know when it's going to come out or is this um, all quite far off it's all quite far off at this point um but it's but it's amazing that we've even got the the name of the lead actor the director and the and the writer at this point i mean i mean to me with the casting of johnny flynn it feels like i mean this will be like it will be a commercial it'll be a commercial barnstorm it will be a very similar film to bohemian rhapsody in that respect but you know, considering I, I I see Johnny Flynn as a as a singer and an artist more than an actor, they're clearly trying to take steps to make this a more music and a more true rendition of, of of David Bowie the artist rather than a really really well done character portrayal of him as a person. Correct. Um, and I hope that's the way they go with it. I think that taking on the character and doing him as a person justice is and his personal life and everything he went through and all of his time in berlin and the thin white duke and all that stuff like i think that's even harder than freddie mercury mm. and i don't really think there's anyone that i can think of that could possibly do it um do it well yeah so i mean at the very least what we could probably take in terms of safety from these announcements of this of whether this is going to be a good movie or not, it's going to be a fucking well-performed film. Oh, yeah. Um, which is really going to do his music justice. Um, yeah, pretty cool. Really cool pretty news. Cool. Now, we've got a final bit of news, which we both realised we wanted to talk about, so we thought we'd just kind of merge it and have a conversation. This past week, Liam Neeson has been a hot topic. Um, the, the bloke himself was... Uh, he, he was in an interview with the Independent newspaper in the UK yep. on the press junket for his new film, Cold Pursuit, which stars him as kind of a revenge-killing badass. Taken um, seven. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and he was kind of in conversation, which was recorded and then subsequently distributed around the world for everyone to hear. He recounted a story um, within which a close personal friend slash family member, a female family member was raped many many years ago in his time living in northern ireland um and he says in this recording that he at the time and this is a long long time ago now but he said that he was so kind of enraged by it and so kind of distraught that he kind of went around the streets for nights on end with a bludgeon kind of hoping that he would find the quote-unquote black bastard um who she said did it um and the world's responded in a million different ways as per everything nowadays some people have um kind of spoken out about how they feel that it was it was 
good for him to um, open up and to share one of his darkest moments because it's not something he's proud of and he makes that very clear in the interview. Um, but then a lot of people also kind of have taken aim at his picking up on the race of it and sort of saying, well, you know, there's a million, million kind of reasons why you could have gone out trying to kill this guy in revenge but why did you kind of pick up so clearly on the fact that it was a black guy in this interview um <coughs> liam's kind of subsequently doubled back on good morning america and said you know there, there were there were many many questions that i asked and many conversations that we had with this girl at the time it wasn't solely that he was black that was the reason i was going out it was just a key identifying principle mm. in northern ireland um, at a time that he kind of, you know, is, is, is historically accurate to say there was a, there's a hell of a lot of turmoil um, and a hell of a lot of racism. I mean, we're talking 40 years ago anywhere. Racism's still a problem today, mm. especially in Northern Ireland. So, yeah, it's um, racism that also turned into sort of factionism between Catholics and Protestants. Yeah, it was the time of the Troubles, which yes. he sort of mentions in mentions in this stuff that I think kind of a British and Irish audience sort of understand what he means and then when he goes on Good Morning America they have no fucking clue. They have no um, idea. They, they never know what's happened between Northern Ireland. No. They just think Ireland's one place. It, it, it drives me insane. Well, they just, think, they just think Europe's one place, mate. Oh, <laughs> let's be gosh. honest. Anyway. Um, but anyway, no, so, so that's kind of where we're at with it. He He's courted a lot of controversy. His Cold Pursuit film has flagged at box office. It's lagged at box office. Sorry, not flagged. Uh, it's made about six million in its opening weekend when it was tracking ten million, um, which is clearly a response to, mm. you know, what's the, the comments he made. Um, what are your thoughts on it, Will? I, having listened to it, and also looked at some responses, um, I think that what actually should have happened is that this be a really positive story about a man trying to, um, a man at one point in his life wanting to do this thing about revenge and then um actually um deciding not to this is that th this was sick and it just he says in the interview at one point that revenge just leads to more revenge and more revenge and more revenge and it is a positive story about some about him trying to care for his friend but then actually but then failing in that because he let, lets his own anger consume him um, the up the upsetting placement it does seem it does seem unfortunately placed. I don't think it's problematically placed. I think it's unfortunately placed. Is the the comments about race that he says? It's sort of an intonation thing where it's sort of like he yeah, and it's a it's a thing of like okay, was was what was the person person's name? Can't tell you. Was was he or she black or white? And that was and that is where the thing is that why is that question even asked in the first place? Um, but I think it's, I personally, I think it's a reflection of Liam, Liam Neeson's age and also just him being, um, I, like the whole of the interview for me, it doesn't seem like he's on his game about it. It just seems like he's telling the story and he's actually like, oh God, I'm not, I'm telling the story and I, I don't know how it's going to go. And like, yeah, this like, doesn't it's feel like, like a planned thing. Yeah. Right? And he's like, oh my God, I've just turned a, told a journalist this at the end of the interview. And it it seems like the whole way through he's saying things. He's sincere, he's but sincere. he's like I think he's kind of baffled himself that he's come out with it. And I think we have to accept the fact that he, um, I mean, bloody hell, his 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 adult nephew died last month, 
um, fell 20 feet from a building in Northern Ireland on a night out. And mm-hmm. that's going to be taking an immense toll on him at the moment. You also have to factor in the, this whole conversation. It goes back to the, the Kevin Hart situation with the Oscars and his kind of homophobic comments years ago is how, like, how do we kind of aid any kind of progress in these societal situations if we don't allow people to admit that they weren't right mm. and change? And let's be honest, 40 years ago in Northern Ireland, Liam Neeson probably was fucking raised to be racist. He probably was racist or didn't realise the error of his ways until he became older, became cultured and spent time outside of that kind of, he said it before, like low socioeconomic bubble. Mm. He didn't, he wasn't a fortunate kid. And you, you have to, you have to look at that as a situational thing. It's not him saying in this interview, it is, it is poor wording. And you're right, it should have turned out to be a nice story about someone overcoming kind of real indifference in their life and real kind of nastiness in, the, in, in themselves. But because of the mention of race, it went from being that kind of take a lesson from me, someone who, you know, struggled down a certain path to a hold on, is Liam Neeson actually racist? Mm. And I, I don't know. It is difficult. It is really difficult. I, I see both sides, but I do think that we're quite quick to judge him. I think the, I think I think a lot of people are not giving. You you have a split. You have people like Trevor Noah who's come out and defended him. You have uh, John Barnes, the ex England football player, saying um, going on Sky News and saying that he deserves a medal for being this oh, this talking, candid, this yeah. candid and talking honest, open honestly about race. But then you also have people like Spike Lee who did an interview with. Uh, Andrew Mark um, recently um, before the BAFTAs and he said that um, let's have just try to find the exact quote that he, he says because it's actually interesting his take on it he says um, I don't understand what he was doing it's a crazy crazy bizarre world we live in I've not spoken to Liam I don't know why he did what he did but so, so he's going through it now um, he speculates that he's that I heard he was promoting his new movie about revenge I know he is a Catholic. Was this some form of confession? I don't know. You'd have to ask him. And then he, and then he goes on to say that um, pe- people have to understand history. That the Ku Klux Klan was formed to save white Southern womanhood, and the idea of Liam Neeson going out to try and find any black man because of a rape is actually systematic and problematic of so many issues. And that that bit there reminded me of it being Bill Street could talk, like pe- people being that stigma of black men as rapists being so prominent. I understand Spike Lee's um, arguments, but, but, then, but but then also he's doing a interview for Black Klansmen. He Spike Lee is a very very um, proud um, black man who is doing doing things about black identity that not a lot of people are doing. So his take on this for me, is, is very, very much about the, the, the black movement and not yeah, about... But it's, but it's also, all, like, with all due respect to him, all, yeah. all, 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 Spike Lee's points are, are completely valid, but they're not in contradiction of what Liam Neeson said. Mm. Spike Lee is shedding some light and insight there with his comments on the fact that that kind of behaviour from a Northern Irish white guy 40 years ago is not a justifiable response to the, the action that was taken in yes. the first place. And where, exactly where, Liam's, where Liam's in says. Liam Neeson's comments does he not agree? Where is it in conflict of that? Yeah. He is not proud of himself 
he's I think now that he's kind of had to talk about it even more, he's now trying to turn it into a message of this is not the way you should live your life. Mm. Certainly not in a ra- in a racial way. So I just think like, yeah, all right, great. Spike Lee's weighed in on it, but he hasn't given, if anything, I think that what would be more valid from Spike Lee, a man of his race and of his stature, like you said, with these issues, would be to, in his comments, respect Liam for having the guts to own up to something so egregious while providing the context of this this shouldn't have happened because of x y and z mm. do you know what i mean yeah yeah, yeah. i don't know no I, don't know. I, no I i agree i think that spike lee's comments also come from a like he's he, like he's, he sort of dismisses it at the beginning of things like i saw the clip i don't know, don't know what he's doing i think it's very easy to get caught up in a tabloid s Liam Neeson's promoting a revenge killing film so he talks about the time he nearly did a revenge killing on a black guy mm. like that is that is such a reductionist way of looking at his comments also Spike Lee was asked the question by Andrew Marr about this it wasn't something he brought up yeah what as a as a black director who's nominated for an Oscar for Black Klansman what is he supposed to say because if he says yeah, yeah, anything no, you're completely right what, yeah. what is he supposed to say because otherwise he might get the exact same treatment as yeah. Spike Lee and d- endanger his film. D- d- defend him, defend Liam Neeson, and your film might be fucked. Exactly, like, exactly. Yeah, no, but I that's a sad agree. world we live in yeah. where that could be the case. Like Spike Lee might. Spike Lee probably doesn't actually care anything about this issue, but but he has to weigh up for it because he's on UK News with Andrew Marr. Yeah, and anything that he says that would be would, that might defend Liam Neeson would again be taken out of context, which I think. Liam Neeson's comments have been. Mm. Um, it's an interesting story because, especially especially with so many controversies that have happened, um, and we've talked about loads and loads of different things that have happened in the past year, this one seems the most bizarre because actually, it even though it's an odd example for Liam Neeson, it's actually an overwhelmingly positive thing about growth. Yeah. And the fact that that is now being turned into a career defining problem for Liam Neeson is quite sad I mm. think I think he'll bounce back from it I think that anyone in their right kind of in their same mind can see that he's not he's not inferring that he in 2019 is going to go out with a bludgeon and mm. start hunting black men on the streets of Ireland like yeah. you know what I mean like anyway we, we'll, listeners you have the floor Yes. If you want to get in touch with us and give us your opinion please do we'd love to hear call it in. Um, call in shout abuse at us do whatever you want to do. <laughs> Please don't shout to me. I always have this. I always have this. I always have this image that we're sitting here talking about a really heavy topic, and someone's on the tube to work, and they're just like these fucking white guys, man. I'm like, well, I know, I know. I always. How do they justify the things they say? Yeah, but we always have to tre- check our privilege at the door. That's what we always try and do with this podcast. Is Very check true. Our, check our privilege at the door. Try and discuss these issues as candidly as possible, but also understanding that we don't know everything. And that we have a lot to learn on subjects. So, call in. Please call in. <laughs> well, we can't accept calls live on the podcast, <laughs> mate, but as cool as that would be. Anyway, that wraps up our news. Now, we are going to go on to reviewing Green Book. The book that is green. So, this is another one of the Oscar-nominated Best Picture films. Um, I think we've pretty much seen all of them now, after this. Yep. What ones have we not seen? We haven't seen... Can you ever forgive me? Which I was not that excited about, and then I got to- I, I was talking to someone yesterday, and he said that it's one of the best pieces of cinema he's seen in years, and yeah. it threw me. It's and apparently it's all in the filming of it, 
Um, it's 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 it struck me as a film that looked quite unremarkable. Yeah. But same. apparently, the way that the the way that it's cinematically shot is beautiful. So we yeah we should we should give that a look in, especially before the no, Oscars. definitely definitely we need to see if we can squeeze it in. But other than that, we have seen it's that. I love us. We both got off, we both desperately scrambled to the both Oscar got the Oscar nominations. <laughs> now we, ne- next week we will be kind of going through all of the Oscar nominations and kind of working out exactly what we think is going to win and kind of hopefully again beat that percentage yep. hit rate that we've got from Giving us uh, a deep Golden Globes and the BAFTAs. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the only two films we haven't seen are Vice and can you forgive me was a complete lie, mate. It's not up for Best Picture. Is it not? No, so the only one we haven't seen, so Best Picture nominees for the Oscars are Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, the Triple B, <laughs> The Favourite, Green Book, Roma and A Star Is Born. And Vice is the last one, mm. which is definitely not going to win. So I'm not that fussed about not watching it. Yeah. Um, I'm also bored of Christian Bale gaining weight. Oh, I'm just sick of Christian Bale in general. Mm. Because Vig- because in the, uh, going back onto Green Book, Viggo Mortensen gains weight for this film. Gains about 40 to 50 pounds of extra weight. But this is Viggo Mortensen we're talking about. It's not Christian Bale doing these Christian Baleisms in another character. Viggo Mortensen, for me, is one of the most varied talented actors he's incredibly dynamic and yeah and that 40 50 pounds is about character i mean we're talking about the guy who did aragorn in the lord of the rings trilogy but then went on to do yeah it was a couple of years ago now did you watch captain fantastic i'd never watched it which is about amazing things the the dad that kind of raises his kids out in the wilderness i beautiful film man. yep absolutely beautiful and then the road he's so fantastic yeah 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 yeah. he is in the road oh shit yeah Oh, amazing, and it, but then we're also uh, this film kind of like we're, we're probably only really going to talk about the two leads because they are really it, other characters gravitate around them, and I will say all of the side characters in this film are perfectly pleasing, but they never really do anything massive. Mm. But that's kind of because they're not really they're not really meant to, and they don't really ever get given the chance to do anything massive. They're not really massive parts of the story, other than in kind of comments and the way they lead to the two main characters interacting yeah but um Mahershala Ali is obviously Viggo Mortensen's foil in this film um who has just been barnstorming it recently man like obviously we both love him from Moonlight uh, my entry to him was he played Cottonmouth Stokes in the Luke Cage TV series which mm-hmm. was excellent he's been in True Detective recently he I mean he's just doing a great job. Yeah. He's just and, doing a great job. And that great True job. Detective season three, I've not watched it yet. I'm I, I desperately need to. But it's got so much many good reviews. Yeah. After a, a season two that has been seen to be universally panned by most critics yeah, well, and I, audience. Tough act to follow the first season oh, of True yeah. Detective, but it, it just the second one didn't do it. Mm. Um so you've got two two incredible actors in their own right, but also two guys. One of them who's kind of had his time to shine as a Hollywood A-lister and the other one who's kind of just emerging and is kind of one of the best um, and most recognised black actors in Hollywood at the moment. Um, So who better to portray this role uh, than him? But Mahershala Ali plays Dr. Malcolm Shirley, Mm -hmm. um, who is a very affluent pianist or classical composer. Does he go beyond piano? He's a he's a classical com- composer, but it's it's his act itself is sort of more sort of classical jazz in, in, in mm. infused, um, kind of like a Quincy Jones. Um, yeah, yeah. But he's very kind of you know if there was someone who had done grade eight 
piano and then distinction and gone through all of those kind of academic ways to learn how to play an instrument rather than those stories like Dave Grohl just picked up some drumming sticks and started drumming and never had lessons. Like he's very much on that end of tick all the boxes, do learning instruments the most academic and mechanical way possible. Yep. Um, and he's garnered a hell of a lot of fame, but also a hell of a lot of money out of it. He's a very, very intelligent and talented man. Uh, and then he's kind of en- enter Tony, Tony the Lip, Tony Lip Vallelonga, who is a Italian, Italian American father living in the Bronx with his family of how many kids does he have? Like two or three? Um, he has two kids. Two kids. Um, a doting wife, but that very stereotypical kind of Italian New Yorker style, big family, lots of cousins. Um, he works as a bouncer in a nightclub or kind of like a bit of, he's kind of the muscle of the nightclub. He's not afraid to kind of take a few hits and kick a few people out. Um, but he's a good man. He's a family man, but he is kind of, he's brought into, he's grown up in that quite entrenched racist system. So kind of an opening scene that kind of gives you his, gives you an insight into kind of the way he sees things. Um, the wife, Dolores has, people come around to fix the plumbing and he, Tony comes home from work and he finds that all of his cousins and you know brothers etc are all there watching the game uh, on his TV and he's like oh why are you all here and they're like oh we're keeping Dolores company and gesture to the kitchen and Dolores is in there with two black plumbers who are doing the work mm. and so there's that kind of level of distrust there and Dolores gives them both a drink from a glass and later on the same day finds the glasses in the bin. So Tony's binned them because they've drunk out of them. And so that's kind of the setup. It's quite quite a straightforward premise, mm-hmm. um, but it's done quite well. And then Tony eventually takes on the job of driver for Dr. Malcolm Shirley as he goes down south through the southern states uh, performing. So playing piano as part of the uh, Shirley Trio, I think they're called. So it's him and his two kind of Russian um, co-composers. Mm. Um, one, one Russian, one American. One Russian, one American. Uh, but essentially they go on this tour of some of the most racist states in America. This is early 1960s. So I think it's 62. Okay. <laughs> you um, tell the story. I'll just do the you'll side. Just back, up, back up the facts. Cheers. <laughs> you're doing um, such a great job of explaining. Just, cheers, just mate. With, like such a great job of explaining this. This this film is great. Well done. Thank you, man. Thank Please you. continue. Um, <laughs> so anyway, before that brief pause, that brief, that brief interlude in the story, um, they they essentially they go on this tour, and I mean, if people have watched this, they know what I'm talking about. There's no point explaining it anymore. Um, if you haven't watched it. Please go and watch it and then come back to this review because it, it's a really beautiful film. I think me and Will both agree. Um, I was surprised with how beautiful it was. Yeah. Um, it, it looked it looked as one of those films that looked a bit... Plain, Oscar Beatty. Very Oscar Beatty. It, like, yeah. it looked like they were sort of dealing with um, racism in, in a sort of like through a white skewed lens. Um, which and there are, there are elements of that. I mean, this, this film... I found that I enjoyed this this film more when I viewed it as a slightly offbeat and charming comedy mm. about two unlikely friends viewed through the lens of 1960s America. Mm-hmm. This film will not break any boundaries for its uh, depiction of racism. Um, it could do a lot more to show the black experience in this film 
but it and it and it was written by white guys. It was written by Peter Farrelly, and it was written alongside um, Nick Vallelonga, who is Tony's son. So it's written based on the memoirs of the white person in this story. Yeah by white people so it it, it it make no mistake this isn't going to be for, for someone looking to, to truly understand the black experience and truly understand the real dr shirley's experiences you're you're not getting that and a lot of the criticism of this film has been levied at that that it's not a not a truly accurate i mean you know more about this than me like the fact yeah, that um people don't think this is a massively accurate portrayal well um so shirley's relatives um, have condemned this film really but yeah they stated that they were not contacted by studio representatives until after the development that it misrepresented shirley's relationship with his family don's brother from maurice shirley said my brother never considered tony to be his friend he was an employee his chauffeur um, this is why context and nuance is so important the fact that a successful well-to-do black artist would employ domestics that did not look like him um, should not be lost in translation um I think that's a very understandable and fair point from the relatives. Uh, it's been defended by um, early mentioned jazz artist Quincy Jones, been um, also def- defended by NBA Hall of Fame Kareem Abdul-Jabbar um, on a piece by the Ob- a Hollywood Reporter. Um, it's an interesting take on it about the idea of the, the idea of it not being historically accurate. But one of the things I would say about this film is that it doesn't really. At any point in this film, do you think of it as a biopic film? No. See, I, I I did have it through that lens of it being based on a true story, but I kind of felt the less I thought about that, the more I enjoyed it. Exactly. Um, so I'm, for the reasons we just discussed before you went into that, and I mean, those comments really do shit all over the idea of this being a true story. Um, I just, I really enjoyed it as an unlikely friendship comedy, um, which had some relatively sincere moments in it whether Mm. they're true or not um there's a particularly great scene where they get arrested and dr shirley they eventually they they get out of prison by dr shirley calling in a favor with one of the kennedys who Mm. he's familiar with because obviously he's acquainted with all these kind of upper white white you know very important people from his kind of touring and playing in the white house etc um, and when they're then driving away from the prison, they get out in the rain, they have an argument, and he says something like, well, if I'm not black enough and I'm not white enough, then what the hell am I? Mm. Um, and that's, you know, it, it does. It, it's an interesting perspective because so many films in Hollywood nowadays that tackle race or racial biopics like 12 Years a Slave, etc., etc., um, I don't, I can't recall any that have looked at the strange like the peculiar situation of being an affluent intellectual black man Mm. in kind of 50s 60s america it's always kind of viewed through the lens of poverty or just kind of you know struggling on struggling to make ends meet etc etc and i've said that four times now (laughs) (laughs) so many etc um, but that was what I found quite interesting about this film is if you take anything away from it in terms of its tackling of racial issues, it was the courage needed to be a black man who has done more than earn his keep and earn his respect 
um, amongst kind of the upper echelons of white privilege, mm. and yet still gets treated like any regular black person. Yeah. Um, you know, there are scenes in this film where he's not allowed to use the same bathroom in a stately home as the white guests or that are coming to, to watch him perform. Or not allowed to eat at the same restaurants as and all of his band members are, even though he's playing the restaurant gig. Yeah. And I mean, all of that is quite sincere and it's handled quite well, but none of it will be particularly groundbreaking. No. But it's just kind of watching the intricacies and the kind of the, the strange awkwardness of that position was what I found fascinating. Yeah. Because I've never seen that be tackled before. I think what's positive about this film is that I would I would I would agree with the criticism that it, it is a film that is filmed through a, um, a sort of white a white lens, yeah. so to speak. I would. But I will say that there have been so many films up to up till sort of really um really sort of like late twenty the, the late twenty tens that being the exact same thing of of white directors um, directing films about black experience, and I will say there are the nuances in this film are trying to treat the subject matter with integrity and with um pu- with purpose. Mm. Um, I think that I I remember back back to the scene where um Viggo Mortensen's character Tony goes to is is driving on the road and he needs to pee. He goes to the side of the road, has a wee. He just goes off to start walking behind the car. Then he comes back in the car and takes his wallet with him. And things like that, small nuances of that, like the idea that the wallet's not safe in the car with a person who doesn't, doesn't know. I, 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 I maybe saw some more into it, but I, I just think that was meant to be there. That was meant to be there so that Marshall Ali could do a reaction shot of classic, typical. Um, and it's it, it does do well at portraying these characters. Also, I, I really... They're likeable characters. They are like it's an enjoyable characters. story. Yeah. Um, and it all kind of ticks along in a very nice way. It's mm. just, if you're going into this looking for a really long-lasting, deep, um, moving portrayal of black experience in America, you're, you're not going to get it. No. But if you're looking for a film about an unlikely friendship which goes through some interesting twists and turns and just has a lovely set of characters and actors, then you, you'll, you will enjoy it. This film reminded me a bit about a bit of the old man and the gun, in terms of its in terms of its tone. It's kind of like a road movie, a sort of comedy road movie with a really deep, dark, um, not deep and dark subject matter at the head of it. Um, the ca- the relationship between the two main characters is so funny, and there's so many so many funny scrapes they get themselves into, whilst also taking place in a sort of horrific racism of the 1960s. Um, it's really interesting. I, but I also would like to, like to say that I, in this film, I think the treatment of Mahashali Ali's character, Don Shirley, being gay, um, is underplayed to such a great level. It's underplayed where it happens. You know, you know that's the case, but they don't need to harp on it. They they just they address do you, it. Do you like that then? Do you like that they just kind of address it and they have a good conversation about it and then that's that? Yeah, nip in the bud. I yeah. I appreciate. I didn't want it to be brought up again because I didn't think it was necessary. For well, not part. even that. I don't think that's Don Shirley's character. Yeah, like the character of Don Shirley is a person that um, is quite. Um, he's not. He's not a sexual being. 
Um, but in the 1960s, that is how you would do it. You, um, gay men used to have different handkerchiefs in their back pocket with different colours, um, which used to tell people what they were into and what they liked and etc. The modern day equivalent of Grindr is always there. But it's just it was just the function. And it's just part of that world. And it's and it, I don't see Don Shirley, unlike Bohemian Rhapsody, where I have a problem with the under-sexualisation of Freddie Mercury's character and um, the, the sort of over-sexualisation of the kinkiness of gay sex and the under-sexuality of Freddie Mercury's character because he's seen as the hero. Um, but in this film, I think it suits Don Shirley's character for it not to be talked about all the time. Yeah. I, I, I particularly like that as well. I like that they didn't make a meal of it. And there's mm. quite a nice scene in a hotel foyer between Dr. Shirley, who's obviously very embarrassed by the fact that Tony's had to come and bail him out of this situation, mm. um, where Tony's walking down the stairs and he says something like, um, oh, like the amount of different clubs I've worked in, I've learned that there's much more... There's, life's there's, complicated. Life's complicated and there's many more things that should be important. Yeah. Or something like that. And it's just a really nice moment where it's like between two guys... One who's kind of from the outset deemed quite prejudiced, but actually in his heart isn't. And one who's very kind of hyper vigilant in detecting prejudice. It was just this conversation of, you know what? Like, I don't need to know. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. Yeah. And I thought there was something quite sweet about that. I like that moment. And I think also it's a realistic conversation to have in the 1960s. Yeah, it is. You're not going to have a conversation in, in, in 2019 you would have a dis- discussion about what was happening with, the, with that yeah. and like the emotions because of it. Because we have to over-explain everything well, exactly. and no one has any privacy. Exactly, uh, exactly. Another, co- another podcast. <laughs> Completely different podcast, not even a film review podcast. <coughs> anyway, should we go on to Critic Quote Awards? Yes, um, can I just make one point? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, my point is about the actual title of the film, The Green Book. Um, the, f- the film is named after the Negro motorist uh, Green Book, which is a mid-20th century guidebook for african-american travelers written by victor hugo green to help them find motels and restaurants that would accept them um i had a chat with about this film with um a person yesterday who was talking about how the problem with green book is that the 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 film is called green book Mm. which is a fascinatingly it's a fascinating document that existed and it's such a shame that that document existed and it has so much political swing with it right. that the actual film Green Book, being this kind of sort of, sort of like half road trip movie, half racial story um, with bits of comedy spru- spruced in there, um, doesn't really get to the heart of that title. Mm. I get the criticism of that. Oh, there, there we go. That, that really went red, didn't it? It's um, really got the wheel. Um, I get the criticism of that. I, but I still think that I was never aware of the Green Book, and it is a perfect. It was a it was a nice thing to have included in this film, and it serves as a visual motif a lot a long a lot of the way through the film, and I think it's quite important to the plot that it's called Green Book, um, because it's also I think even just by naming the film Green Book, I've learned I would not know what that it, that was before that. I would know not know what this document was. Um, and that's a really fascinating piece of history. Um, but yes, that's 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 my little aside. Yeah, no, no, I completely agree. I think, yeah, 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 yeah. That's that. <laughs> um, crit- critic quote awards for Green Book. There was some, there was some good stuff in here. Mm. There was some meaty stuff. My uh, best description for Green Book comes from Ruben Peralta of Cocalipas. Cocalipas. And he said, taking advantage of an established and successful cinematic model. 
Peter Farrelly builds a nice comedy that works wonders. I think that is so true if you just view this through the lens it's supposed to be viewed in, rather than taking it too seriously, you will be delighted. Yeah, I agree. Um, I My uh, best description is from Jeffrey McNabb from The Independent. Um, Ali and Mortensen make a ter- tremendously engaging odd couple. Both give such nuanced and well-observed performances that most audience will swallow the sentimental moralising as easily as Tony digests his hot dogs. And I think that's the thing about this film, is that's a great line to end it. But it's a great thing about this film is that it is sentimental. It's a film that is about, like, I think the last scene of the film, you're so invested in everything that's happened, happened that it does feel like some, some kind of like odd romance. Like, are they going to see each other at the end? I want them to see each other at the end. And it's, it's beautiful. And it's magical. I, I I love the sentimentality that is in this film. I don't think it's put on. I think it's I think it's just sweet. It's it just ca- a sweet film. It also kind of ends like a nice Christmas movie. And it I does. I couldn't help but feel like it reminded me of that scene in Love Actually, where because Doctor Shirley's kind of left on his own after this incredible trip on Christmas Eve, um, and he's kind of alone in his really rich mansion. And it reminds me of um, what's the name of the the singer in Love Actually? But um, fuck, what's the character? The guy who's like he says he's gonna get naked and perform a Christmas song. Oh, that's Bill so Nye. Nice. Bill Nye. Bill Nye's character. Bill Nye's character, and he kind of he's all alone and rich in his house, and he turns to his manager and says, "You know what? You're without even realizing Billy you, Mac. You've been the best friend I've ever had, kind of thing." And it's like that, and it's all really sweet. Um, but some people didn't really like this film. Um, one of them was Bob Chipman of Movie Bob Central. Uh, Movie Bob Central said, The Green Book hums along about as smoothly as what boils down to my cousin Vinny teaches Carlton Banks to get his blackness back. Probably can. Ooh. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty horrible. That is it? pretty horrible. Dear God. My cousin Vinny teaches Carlton Banks to get his blackness back. Now we could talk about Liam Neeson being racist, but I think Bob Chipman's being fucking racist. Yeah, but I'm not sure about Bob. Um, I don't think those comments are just fair in general because you're you're just you're that's just you planting anger about it and saying that you're desperately not racist. But when when you are actually saying terrible things in that review, also Carlton Banks. I mean. This would be one dour Carlton Banks. Doctor Shirley is—he doesn't really chuckle at all through the film. He never dances. No, no, not a fan. Not a fan at all. Chip off, Chipman. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's great. I like that. Um, mine is from Jordan Searles from The Ring of Green. Um, Green Book operates in a fish price world where every heart can be changed and friendship always prevails. Oh my god! I know. They've been brutal in this film. Are you sure he hasn't got mixed up with his review of the Lego movie or something? It sounds no, like something you criticize no. up for. Um, Jesus, that's harsh, man. I actually have one more written down. Um, Barry Hertz of the Globe and Mail said, It's not quite racism for dummies, but the strokes are so broad and the tone so breezy that I saw Green Book could qualify as the new I Have a Black Friend. These are really racist comments coming from white reviewers of this film, thinking Mm. that they're being really important, but they're not. I don't know. (sighs) I think they're trying to be moralising about the black experience, but they're they're actually actually coming off incredibly condescending. Yeah, I think that. I think that's it. I think they're. I think they're not giving the the film enough credit for doing doing anything at all. Because you know what? This film could not exist, and it could be, and it, and there could be another white film at the Oscars. At least, at least this film has tried. 
desperately. I think a lot of the bad press about this film and the bad, the bad critical press especially has come from the fact that it's it's from a white lens in a, in a category where uh, Black Klansman is up there by Spike Lee and in a year where you've had Sorry to Bother You. Yeah. Um, it's it's just it just feels like the odd one out of those of those three films. It doesn't feel like it's a new black story. Yeah. But then it, but then again, it's important at this point. Any black story is important. Like I need to, uh, as a white person with privilege, I want to be educated in as many ways possible. And if that is a white man doing it, actually that that maybe not more valid. I'm probably not more valid. But it's a, it's a nice to have both both things. It's you can't just say that there are, there are black directors that that are making waves in these black films, and therefore a white director is pastiche because a yeah. white director can have a completely different um, way of looking at it that um, that is not em- empathetic, um, but is but is trying to learn while whilst doing the film. I think it's I think it's incredibly wrong that a lot of people have lobbied criticism because it's a white lens film. I think that it is a white lens film. And I think you can't escape from that, but I think it's incredibly unfair that people are writing it off because of that. I agree with you if people are willing and if the writers are willing to accept that this should not be taken as a fully accurate representation of the life and experiences of Dr. Shirley. I think that if they came out in the press junket for this film, and there was a whole thing, wasn't there, with this the press junket for this film of Viggo Mortensen saying the N-word and everyone kind of kicking off. Do you remember? Uh, yes. I can't remember much about that. Um, well, I, 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 I can't remember much about it. It was glossed over, though. Yeah. Herschel Ali defended it. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make is, if people, if the writing team came out and said that they were trying to make the most truthful account and representation of this tour through the southern states, then I think it would be fair to criticise it for being reductionist and white lens. Mm. but to the best of my knowledge they're not saying that and yes this is an Oscar Beatty film this is a fucking Oscar Beatty film but I think if you take it at face value and you stop trying to look into the things it could have been and the things it's not it is just an enjoyable movie and at the end of the day especially on this podcast I think that is what we look for and that is what we crave is just good movies that are funny engaging, well-acted, and can bring a tear to your eye. Correct. We've kind of spoken about that as being our criteria for, like, top ten movies. Oh, yeah. Um, this this is not going to be the best film I've ever, I've ever reviewed in this podcast. I mean, what would you rate this out of ten? I would rate this film... Well, I was trying to think about what I gave Black Klansman, and I think Black Klansman is a film that is more cinematic than this. I think the direction on this film is actually quite bog-standard. Yeah. Um, I think it's all about the performances, it's all about the story and the plot. Um... I would give this film a seven point five. I gave Black Clansman an eight, I believe. Okay. Um, I think it's I think it's great. I I really enjoyed the story of it, um, but it's not anything groundbreaking. Yeah. Um, it's just a really nice sentimental story. I'm gonna give it an eight. I I think it was nice. really I think it was really enjoyable. Um, and it was a lovely film, and I would urge people to go and watch it if they haven't seen it. I don't think we've particularly ruined anything major. No. Um, but that is all it is yeah i i'm not hoping for this film to win against roma um or the favorite in the oscars or in well the baftas have been and gone um but i do want it to do well and to be well received which it is definitely um in terms of before we wrap up best moment in the film yes mine is mine is the the final scenes where um Tony returns to his family and it's Christmas Eve and then Dr. Shirley comes and joins them 
What's yours? Mine is the final scene as well, but there was a very specific moment. <gasps> Gone. It's the trolling of um, Tony opening the door, and it's just Italian people. It's two Italian people who are related to them that never come to Christmas. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. they walk in like, oh, it's so surprising to see you, etc. And then Tony sort of looks at them a bit disappointed and then goes back and is about to shut the door. And there is um, Michelle Ali's character. Dr. Shirley. Dr. Shirley, thank you for remembering. We've been saying it for half an hour. Yep, <laughs> I know. Um, it was it was wonderful. It, it was, was lovely. really, really wonderful. Last oh, time. it's just a lovely ending to a lovely film. Yes. Um, up next week, we have a double bill. We are going to be reviewing the Lego Movie 2, and we're also going to be reviewing Alita Battle Angel. Mm. Now, we're not going to have any news next week because we are going to be, well, only really a few days away from the Oscars. So we are going to sit down and properly discuss our best picks, what we think about whoever's going to host it, which I still don't think has been confirmed. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll just go through all of that. Hopefully it'll be exciting. Um, make sure you keep in touch with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Drop us an email at 52weekfilmproject at gmail.com. Thank you very much, Will. Thank you very much, Jake.